Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. And our correspondent, Allison Trowbridge. Hello, Don. You guys, I'm really excited about this interview because I think it addresses an injustice in the world today, an economic, cultural, social injustice. Go. That is... Artists, and by that I mean fine arts, Mm -hmm. painters, Mm -hmm. don't get paid. They don't have a way of making a living and honing their craft and getting better and enjoying a life. And I think what they offer the world is incredibly, incredibly important. I think we want to highlight some people who are, we want to highlight some of the artists who are doing great work, but also some of the people who are creating economic dynamics so that people, artists, can paint and enjoy life and have a business. And Don, you've actually, you guys have purchased art from local artists to hang up around the office. We do that a lot. Yeah, we do that. So this is a big deal of Betsy. I like art and I enjoy artists, but it's a big deal for my wife. My wife actually really loves to support artists. And, you know, we're not like uber wealthy. We're not buying, you know, really expensive paintings. But rather than going to TJ Maxx or whatever, yeah. wherever you would buy like cheap paintings put on the wall. I've bought prints at Ross before, guilty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, we had a, an interior designer decorate our office and she bought some some really nice paintings, but who knows where they were bought. And we are slowly replacing them with artists who are solely living off their art and who need patrons. And you're, yeah. you're not talking about, you're talking about, you know, like 3500 bucks for a really big painting above your couch that will live forever you know, and $1,500 for a couple small ones that would go in the hallway. And then $250 for an Instagram artist who will paint your dog. I mean, just yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> we're not talking about art that we're going to resale. Oh, some of it, though, yeah. you would resell probably someday for a lot. But that's not what we're actually talking about. We're talking about just nobody mass produces art on a really great level, I don't think, yeah. on a great scale. Well, every piece of art that's in my home, except for one, is mm-hmm. made by people that I know. One is by an artist in Kenya that I actually got while I was in Kenya. Another is a pop culture artist in LA. And then another one is my brother. My brother is an amazing painter who has done apprenticeships to do sculpting. And when we were younger, he he would win the award every year at the county and state fair for like carvings and paintings. And he just did his first curated show at a gallery. And he's been painting his whole life and been almost a little bit scared to put his stuff out there and say, like, am I this good and can buy? And he just did a series of seven paintings that are about elephants in Africa that are Mm. unbelievable. Does he want to live as a full-time artist? Would that be his dream? I think if he could, he would, yes. But there's an economic thing that's keeping him from doing it. Because he's also, like, embarrassed to charge, like, family and friends what really... his paintings are worth. Yeah. Like Did his, you pay for the one in your house? No. I asked him for my birthday. <laughs> so that saved him yeah, some money. I actually commissioned I commissioned him to do three paintings for me yeah. uh, based on my favorite book. And they're yeah. amazing. So, JJ, I love elephants. But if I wanted to buy one of your brother's pieces of art, where would I even go to do that? Yeah, you wouldn't even know that they existed. Right. Like, they're not out there other than Wait, just I mean, like I mean, let's personal. talk about that. We're a bunch of business people. None of us are painters. But we're a bunch of business I actually people. am so a painter. Business, you're a pa- Allie, you are? I am, yeah. yeah. My mom's an art teacher. My dad owns an art store. This is like very close to my heart. Oh, wow. Did you ever want to be a, an artist like for money? Actually, you know what's funny? I painted quite a bit in high school and someone once offered me $400 for a painting I had up in a coffee shop. And I said no, because I couldn't part with it. So I'm oh. probably bad on the business <laughs> side of art. <laughs> but what I love so much about this interview with Nahima that you all will hear in a moment is she saw this huge gap in the marketplace. And this is really yeah. like the crux of entrepreneurship that as it currently stands, me as a lay person who loves art, has a passion for it, wants to support artists, my choices are either go to Christie's Auction House and try and get something that's insanely expensive or you know, go to Ikea and buy a print or find somebody that I know. But what if I want to discover new up-and-coming artists who have an incredible craft? Like, where do I even go to find them? Yeah. And Nahima saw this gap in the marketplace and said... I think I can address that. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Because I think it's a marketing problem. It's a distribution problem. It's an mm-hmm. economic problem. And it's fixable. We have all the tools and resources to fix it. So the yeah. fact that Nahima is doing this is makes me just really excited yeah. to highlight her. 
you know, art isn't something that you produce like screwing bottle caps on bottles, right? I mean, you have to be able to think about it. You have to, I mean, just commissioning the piece that we have at the office, mm-hmm. that was months. You know, she came back and said, I'm thinking about a rabbit and two crows. And we're like, okay, we approve that. And then she comes back like a month later with a sketch of it. And we're like, wow, she's really like kind of meditating on yeah. this. <laughs> and then, you know, it's not quite right. You know, and then and about four or five months later, we finally had our painting. It was just the neatest thing. You mm-hmm. know, it was the neatest thing. It was the greatest experience for me and Betsy and for the office. It would be nice to have a sort of a, a way of selling that and distributing it that more artists could participate in. And I think she's created it here. We're, we're not only going to hear from Nahima Mehta, but we're also going to hear from Lisa Shirk. So we're actually going to hear from an artist who has found ways to live off of her art. And she's very creative. She's very good. She lives in D.C. And I called her because I know of her interviewed her right after she left. Allie, you're going to love this. A nunnery. She was the resident artist. She's not Catholic at a monastery in Idaho where these nuns, these ladies bring in a resident artist to help them with their career, help them with their craft, pay for their room and board. And she just painted all day along with morning and evening prayers and meals and times of silence and spiritual rhythms and she had a fantastic experience. How so, do I get her job? Are they taking applications? <laughs> like, she, you know, it was interesting. She, in the interview, she talks about having to detox for a few days and then kind of not wanting to leave. You know, wow. she felt a lot of burden because she's like, these nuns are paying for me to be here. I got to put something on canvas that's going to be really beautiful. And she felt a lot of pressure until finally the sort of spiritual element of it released. And she was like, no, there's no pressure. I'm just going to create something beautiful. And she'll tell us about that. It's just neat. Good art has to find a way. Yeah. It just has to find a way. And those of us who aren't artists, unlike Allie, those of us who are not (laughs) artists, who are not painters, and who own businesses, hint, hint, everybody listening, (laughs) consider reaching out and supporting, not just charity, like consider buying art from somebody who's worth it and helping them live a life that they want to live. They're helping their dreams come true. Don, and the most special thing about this interview is not only do we have an artist but we actually have a patron of the arts. So completely different vantage point on the art industry, a woman who is more passionate about art than anyone I have ever met. Her name is Roberta Amundsen. I'm so excited for you guys to hear her perspective. She's invested more money than you and I will ever touch into into the arts and supporting artists. I've been to her home and she literally has a cathedral that she's built in the backyard that she's patroned an artist to build. It's a spiritual experience to walk through it. It is truly incredible. Galleries, art exhibitions, I mean, and it's people like her that allow some of the greatest art to be created. Well, so on this episode, we have the starving artist. We have the (laughs) art distributor person who's creating the machine so that these artists can actually live off their work. And we have a patron who understands the importance of supporting art and buying art and believes in the product. I like this episode a lot. I think we get started. Let's start with Lisa. Let's start with the artist at the nunnery. Does that sound a good place to start? Perfect. All right, here we go. Lisa, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, I got to be honest with you. You're our starving artist segment. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're anything but starving because I know uh, you are accomplished and you sell a lot of paintings. But you are the artist who got started starving. You actually decided to professionally, you know, out of college, 10 years out, you kind of went, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to try to make this work as a painter. And of the millions and millions of painters, the average person can name five or six of them. You know, so we know this is incredibly hard work. It takes a gifting, it takes a God given talent along with the ability to become sort of a craftsman and learn your trade. And financially, we're curious how do you make it? And so I want you to just tell us what does a year look like financially for you? You don't have to share the actual numbers, but how do you make it as an artist? Yeah, the year looks pretty intense as far as, you know, you make a lot of paintings. Uh If you can sell 50% of what you make, you're doing really, really well. Stop there. How many is a lot of paintings? And because I'm curious, what do you do with the other 50% and how many are 50%? How many paintings are laying around in your garage? Well, it kind of depends how much inspiration I have for the week, but you know, I'd like to probably make a couple a week. If I'm working on a specific commission for someone that stretches over a span of usually two or three months, maybe I incorporate other work, you know, as I'm working on those things, I like to have multiple projects going at once. 
my garage gets very full of stored <laughs> items, uh, which is also part of the process of not getting too dejected at your ratio of ideas to yeah. what you sell. And so I live in Washington, D.C. in a tiny apartment, so I don't have a lot of space for that. So you find yourself repurposing things you don't sell. So, you know, I probably aim to sell, I don't know, 30 paintings a year at least, but I produce a lot more than 60 paintings a year. So my ratio is 10% maybe that I sell from what I make. And the commission business is one thing. That's where somebody actually comes to you. And do they come to you and say, we want a painting of the field where we met or got engaged exactly. or those sorts Much of things? Much more about their personal story. So that's where I can actually make the most money. Those are the ones I prefer. You like commission paintings? Yeah. I like that you get to charge about 40% more because it's not something that you've already done that someone says, oh, I want that, which is very easy in that you don't have to reproduce something that you're trying to guess is in another person's mind but you get to charge a lot more for commission paintings. Do you paint on spec? And by spec, I mean, do you speculate what people might want? Have you noticed like trees and clouds are really popular, so you find yourself painting more of those? Or what's the relationship between your creative flow and the economic necessities? Yep. So that I kind of have noticed my business split into two pieces. So one is sort of what I want to do out of my soul. And another part is more of the commercial side. So a while ago, I decided I needed to diversify some of my products so that people could get in on my products at several price points. Hmm. So not everyone can afford to buy a large original piece of art or even cares to or values that highly. But a lot of people want something pretty or want it on a card. So I started doing more commercial products, which included my paintings on other items like tote bags, cards, bar cards, things that were more in the five to $50 range. And that's hopefully a hook to get people in. I like this artist. And then down the road, you know, ideally that leads to I'll make a bigger purchase from this artist or I'll commission something specific from this artist. And I know Betsy and I kind of went through this enlightenment. You know, we're looking around, everybody's got walls they want to fill with art. And the reality is you can run down to a local shop and get something for four or 500 bucks, or you can save up your money and for $1,500 and a frame. You know, you have something that you've actually commissioned or something from a local artist. I don't think people realize if they're just willing to stare at a blank wall a little bit longer (laughs) and dig a little bit deeper into their community. There are artists all around that you can have a unique piece of art that you really love that's beautiful, that has a narrative to it. It's just not that much. I'm wondering, you know, for a three foot by five foot painting, what's the price range for somebody of your talent? If it's already painted, like they see it on my yeah, website and they want to yeah. buy it, then uh, that's usually anywhere from one to 2000 Yeah, which is about three to four times what you'd pay down at TJ Maxx or whatever. I don't know exactly. where you go. You know, <laughs> but it's, what's beautiful about that, it's totally unique. Nobody else has one. And I don't want to say to support the artist because we don't buy paintings to support ours. We buy paintings because we actually love the painting. Mm-hmm. And the artist is another story. But it's not charity for us. It's actually, we really deeply value this art on this wall. And it's just not crazy expensive. And it's something that I think it's important for more of us to do, to actually buy art. Yeah, and it's part of the dialogue between the artist and the buyer as well. So that's something I love about it. What does that mean to you, the dialogue between the artist and the buyer? I mean, I love hearing stories about why someone would want to buy one of my paintings, or I would paint something specifically to help give a visual representation of either a story or a place that you know, a couple has experienced or a family. So that is a big part of why I like to do this is not just, I want to express myself. I could care less what other people think. I am doing it as a part of a way to engage in my community and contribute to the aesthetic of their house and contribute to the conversations that happen around that painting. So it's definitely a bigger picture for me. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, I'm curious, just because I know you, I know this part of your story, you recently became the artist in residence at, I don't know what else to call it except to call it a nunnery, (laughs) using Shakespearean language, but you lived with a bunch of nuns and you became their artist in residence and you and I have not talked since. How in the world did you get that gig? And tell me what it was like and tell me what you believe and what you have experienced coming out of it. Oh, it was an amazing experience. It was five I would imagine. Five weeks with the nuns. Five weeks with about 30 nuns and the average age, truly the average, was about 80 years old. Wow. Where were you guys? We were in north central Idaho. Beautiful area. So yeah, it was gorgeous. I came the next day it started snowing and pretty much didn't stop snowing for three weeks, which actually was very conducive to the experience because I didn't have anywhere else to be or go. And it was kind of like you can cloister in there with them getting really into their vernacular. And 
I had a studio there. So something very cool about the Catholics, they really honor and value the arts as part of the faith journey. So that was... they have for a long, long time, which is Exactly. So that opened up a big space for just even seeing their appreciation to the arts at this monastery. It's a Benedictine monastery there. And my day consisted of totally joining them on three times a day prayers, meals with them three times a day. And then I did kitchen work as sort of my room and board contribution. And the rest of the time was in the studio. So it was very interesting to see how, even if I liked that much studio practice, I spent probably six to nine hours a day actually painting. And so... Wow. Wow. So with prayer time, meals working in the kitchen, and you still got six to nine hours of painting. Right. It's amazing what you can do when you have nothing else pulling on you, and your stimulus is very low, your external stimulus. It allows a lot more internal process. Was there a detox period? Was there a week of, oh my gosh, I wish I could just stare at my phone all day? Or uh, what was that like? You mean heading there? Well, I mean, even after you got there, did you adjust very quickly to that it kind It took of- about five or six days. So when I first got there, I set everything up in my beautiful studio, which also was so fun because, again, in D.C., I don't have much space for a studio. So I had a whole huge room with gorgeous natural light in this old monastery building and looked at my space and my schedule, which was basically nothing, nothing on the schedule. And then suddenly I was like, blink, blink. Oh, my gosh, I can't produce anything. What am I going to make? I have I have all this time and nothing's in my brain. Nothing's in my heart. And so in the next like five days, I slept pretty much for 12 hours a day, which was crazy because I didn't even think I was that tired when I went there. Did the nuns like look at you at the side of their eye and it's like, she sleeps a lot. Or oh, they no, just they used to any it. guess. They, no they love it. Yeah, they were just like, well, this is what happens. You've got to come into deep rest. You know, you got to get out of the world for a little while and adjust. So they were very much like, I mean, I was sharing some concerns with them, you know, about am I going to be able to produce something? Suddenly feeling this, you know, journey of whatever I produce is going to be what this time means and it needs to mean something and realizing I don't even subscribe to that thought in my real life. But for some reason, I applied that in this setting and, and they said, you know, it's not, you're the project here. It's about what's happening internally. You don't have to produce anything. And so it was very free to kind of come into that. So yeah, it took about six or seven days to get where I was really wanting to get into the studio every day. And and then I had several projects going that I was excited to get back to. Wow. And so what ended up producing in that five weeks? I mean, can you tell us like what happened by the end of it? Yeah, well, I noticed that it's just to get myself out of my stump, I thought about, I love the Michelangelo Sistine Chapel, specifically the part where God and Adam's fingers are about to touch that main part, the creation of Adam. And so I just decided as homage to Michelangelo, and if you can't think of anything to produce on your own, copy somebody else. So I painted that and it kind of launched me into this whole thing about beginning, the beginning and about creation. And since I was at the monastery, I went into scripture and looked at this Genesis 1, the whole chapter of Genesis 1 is this beautiful cosmic poem. And so it lends itself to getting out of the literal thinking and getting into something visual and representational perhaps, but I'm not a realist painter. So that worked for me. And so I ended up doing a series on sort of the seven days of creation plus sort of that initial verse. So it kind of started off of one piece and launched into this series. And at the end of my time, I had to do a presentation. So I did have that in mind that I wanted a bit of a story to tell the nuns at the end of the time. And was the presentation to the actual nuns? Mm-hmm. And their whole community. They've got oblates there. So anybody that wanted to come, there were about 35, 40 people. This is awesome. That just sounds like a movie. You know, Sound of Music meets something. I don't know. What. Yeah, I felt like that, I was that, in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that I would be like twiddling my thumbs. You know, I was there for five weeks. I thought was, there's going to be days I'm bored out of my mind, twiddling my thumbs. But at the end of every day, I wish the day went on longer. And at the end of five weeks, I wish that I had more time there, you know, so... I highly recommend it to anyone who's considering a little sabbatical time. (laughs) How are you different coming out of that experience? How were you different the day you walked out? Going into it, I would have said that being strictly in my studio, professional artist would have been really lonely. And I'm not sure I want to be on that path of a professional artist for my life, just solo. It was very lonely in the studio by yourself all day. But having this experience, I saw how community can play into that solo experience because I was having community, you know, in the morning, noon and night and having that extra structure around it. So 
I actually left kind of thinking maybe I would like this, you know, with some different community constructs around my practice. So that you could get that breathing in where you're talking to people and you're exactly. going back and you're pouring into your work and somebody's pouring into you and you're going back. I always found that hard when I went away to an island to when I used to write books the way before I was married. It was almost like squeezing everything out of the sponge mm-hmm. that you possibly could in five weeks, and nothing was ever being poured back into the sponge. And I think it was the community aspect that I was missing. Right. A lot of my inspiration was coming from conversations I was having with them and, and the space there. So, Well, fantastic. Where can we see this work? Have you already sold it? I have not sold it. I'm trying to decide. It may have turned into a sort of, they're a little bit smaller, so I may decide to do larger versions of what I presented there. So I will have my monastery pieces up on my website, which is lisashirk.com, and have other some other originals that I also did at the monastery there. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. Listen, if you're looking for art for your walls and you like Lisa's story, you're probably going to love her art. Lisa Shirk, S-H-I-R-K.com, and you can see her work there. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Don. I do kind of want to live with the nuns for a minute. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. (laughs) And she's doing well. She's been surviving, not just surviving, she's been financially okay for a few years. It is possible, but it does take like enormous commitment. It's going to be a lot easier, I think, with somebody like Nahima Mehta, our next interviewee that Ali went and talked to, who's creating this, you know, distribution system, a way for people like us to buy art at a mid-range price and support some of these artists and... Ali, anything you want to say about this interview before we dive in? Don and JJ, I think you're going to be updating the office with a whole new slew of art. When <laughs> I can't this. wait, seriously. This may, this may be a, Hold on may to your cost wallets. us a little bit of money. <laughs> okay, here's Nahima Mehta. Nahima, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Allison. It's so good to have you, and I am such a fan of the company that you've built. I actually just yesterday went on your website, and I think I've found a few pieces that I want to buy, so this could be dangerous. (laughs) Oh, well, we can certainly make that happen. That's (laughs) wonderful to hear. So Absolute Art, how on earth did you get started? How did you – I mean, you were the founder of this company, essentially. Yes. So it's a funny story. I had an online art startup of my own with the mission to democratize access to art. And I was speaking about the future of luxury and e-commerce at a conference. And unbeknownst to me, Absolute was there, which I had no idea about until I got this cryptic email from the conference organizer saying, you have to meet with a company. I can't tell you who they are. You need to sign this. 12-page NDA, (laughs) but I promise it'll be worth it. And, you know, I trusted him. So I, I took the meeting and it was the head of innovations at Absolute. And she was explaining to me how the company was looking to extend the brand into other industries outside of alcohol. And of course, you know, bars and hotels are quite obvious choices, but Art was really where their focus was, given their 30-year heritage in the art world, starting with Andy Warhol and Keith Haring and Basquiat, all the way 35-plus years later to Damien Hirst and McLean Thomas, spanning, I think, over 600 artist wow. collaborations. And Just around the absolute vodka bottles? or Yes, exactly. And so... You know, what she explained was really what they had done was these collaborations around marketing, advertising and sponsorship, but never really taking that last step of connecting the artists with the collectors. So that's what they were envisioning absolute art would be all about. And they wanted to do exactly what I had been building, which was to make art as easy to discover and consume as music. And at the time I, you know, I said, wow, that sounds really interesting, but I'm a little confused and I don't quite understand it. And two weeks later, the CEO flew over to New York and he sat me down and he explained the concept a little bit more thoroughly. Like we just went through and basically said, you know, let's try this. We don't know if it's going to work, but we really think we can bridge that gap between artists creating all over the world and people collecting and let's give it a go, you know, name your terms, let's do this. And 
I thought it was really gutsy of a big brand to take that kind of a leap. And especially when it was so core to their identity. So this opportunity to actually give artists true access to collectors all over the world through Absolute's brand recognition, it's been incredible. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those pain points that exist because we're we're looking at the business of art and the business of the art world. And it seems like there's just these enormous gulfs between how do you do that bridge between consumer and product. I feel like my options are to go, typically to go buy, you know, art at Ikea, right? Or I'll find like, or those like prints at Ross or something where it's like just a mass reproduction or it's walk into Christie's or Sotheby's and it's a big art auction house or a gallery, which can be intimidating. How do you bridge that gap between consumer and artist? You're absolutely right, Alison. You hit it right on the head. You know, there's this giant gap between posters and Picassos, right? Oh, this yeah. incredible white space where consumers just don't know where to go. However, incredible art is being created in that space. So the question we really look at is how to collapse all the traditional barriers that you find in the art world. So as you said, it can be really intimidating to go into a gallery and, you know, not even see the prices on the works and not be sure if you can ask uh, the person sitting behind the desk for help. And you can also feel like you need a certain language to talk about that art. So that intimidation, that inaccessibility, and that friction really makes people opt out of the entire process, even if they want to find this incredible art. So what we've been focused on is trying to just make that discovery and consumption process as easy as it is when you're looking for you know, great music or great fashion. It's really interesting because the art world is really the last luxury segment to modernize for this generation's tastes and preferences. So if you think about music or fashion, like fashion 12 years ago, people would have said, oh, you know, you're never going to buy a coat online. You have to see it. You have to touch it. And now, of course, not only is it a booming business, but it's often the preferred method of purchase. So for us, it's really key to actually show that white space between posters and Picassos and make that readily available. So what we do is we travel to cities all over the world from Hong Kong to Havana to Berlin, and we work directly with incredible artists to bring our collectors artworks that are not only accessibly priced, but also will ship to them within 48 hours that arrive to them framed, ready to hang, you know, no more rolls by the door, which (laughs) I swear my husband is so annoyed with. And no more going to the framers and wondering, oh my goodness, it costs just as much to frame this artwork. So we're really working to take all those traditional pain points out of the art world and make the collecting process seamless and enjoyable. And we're lucky to be working with artists you know, featured at the MoMA and the Whitney, as well as more emerging talents and bringing them home into this concept of making art more accessible and not only in the consumption of it, but also in the price point. Wow. And how do you find these artists? Because one of my favorite things about your company is that is kind of that discovery process and and that you are going into Cuba and finding local emerging artists that are telling the story of, you know, their country and their people. And that is such a powerful component of art, right? Art has always been this, almost this mirror to society and this framework for us to see the world in new ways. How do you discover the artists who are doing that? Absolutely. I mean, art really is telling our history in real time and and there's nothing more spectacular than watching artists do that. So we have a really lined up process for this. So what we do is, honestly, it's our team sitting around and saying, huh, looking at a map and saying, wow, I really would love to see the art in Havana or in Hong Kong or in Berlin or LA or Stockholm. It really started with us saying, if we had no money restrictions, no time restrictions, no access restrictions. How would we go about collecting art from around the world? And for us, it was simple. It was identifying incredible cities 
and incredible themes that we were passionate about. So like women's rights or immigration and just going and exploring those with the experts of that field. So when we go to one of these cities or go into these themes, we work with local curators who are not only experts in their fields, but also just these cultural catalysts that are, you know, outfitting museums like the Tate and the MoMA. And we say to them, can you send us a list of 30 artists that you think fit around this city or theme? And once they do, we'll narrow it down to about 20. And then we'll literally hop on a plane with the curator and go artist studio to artist studio. Wow meeting all the artists, getting to know them, filming them in studio, and also in the streets of their cities, and really bringing that art scene to life through our content. And it's it's so fun because you see that these are communities of artists. We always end these trips with a big dinner with all the artists, and we really try to tell their stories authentically as we're discovering them and bring that experience of discovering the artist studio online. Hmm, wow. Now for a consumer or a buyer of art, like where do you begin? What do you think you should look for? Do you think if somebody is wanting to get into collecting art, should they, you know, go for an artist that they know or like how do you capture that value over the the long term? Do you have kind of a philosophy for the buying side of art? At least with Absolute Art, we stand by the value of each of our artworks. You know, we will even buy it back for the value if you feel like you want to buy something else. So that trust level there, which, which we're very proud of. But my philosophy in general is really to buy what you love, right? Just buy something that you would love to live with and enjoy seeing every day and don't be afraid for your taste to evolve mm. because just like your you know wardrobe or your furniture evolves or even your personality evolves as you grow so will your art collection and that's what makes the best art collections is when you can go into a home and see the evolution of the person on the walls it's it's incredible and i think that should always be the number one priority when purchasing art is to purchase something you love. Oftentimes, you know, people can look at art as investment. My previous life was in private equities. I'm very familiar with that world. But, you know, the truth of the matter is from an investment point of view, really the only true, true investments you can make are at the blue chip level, multi-million dollar level Picassos, right? That even in that person's collecting portfolio, it's a sliver, it's their diversified assets, and then it's a thread within that diversified assets. I think collecting for love and passion is always the way to go. And then there's always a chance that these artists do increase in value. So you absolutely never know. Yeah. In terms of actually getting started with an art collection, I would say to see as much as you can. Just go and look and look and look some more, (laughs) whether it's in museums or art galleries or going to local artist studios or studio open houses or looking online. We've never been in a time where information is more readily accessible. You know, you can open your Instagram and find incredible artists. You can learn more about artists just by doing a Google search. I mean, it's a rabbit hole of incredible information. And the more you see and the more you learn, the more your eye will develop and the more you'll trust it. So I would say to look as much as you can. And when you do start collecting, start with a trusted source. Start with somewhere where you know the curation has been very thought through and where you feel comfortable purchasing from because it's like taking an opinion from a friend. You know, the thing that I also love just from a business standpoint is the way that you've not only looked at how do we solve this pain point in the industry wholesale, but you've also looked at how you can innovate around just the mechanics of purchasing art because you guys created like a whole entire new new way of framing and hanging art, didn't you? Can you tell me about that? Yes. So it's exactly right what you're saying. I think what's most exciting to our team is sometimes the unsexy part of this, right? The sexy part is finding the art and looking around, but the most fun problems to really tackle are the unsexy logistics around <laughs> uh, art collecting. And my co-founder, Marcus, and I were always 
super focused on making sure we had a production distribution and fulfillment system that made it entirely seamless for people to enjoy the art collecting process. So we didn't only want to give you access to the greatest art, but we wanted to make sure that once you had that and you had found the art you loved, you didn't have to wait four to six to eight weeks to get it that it didn't come in a roll, that it came framed, ready to hang. It came with some dinner table talking points, as we like to call it, about the artists. Right. And Marcus always used to say, you know, you want that Apple unboxing experience. Like, how can we make that entire experience and translate that to the art world? Because in reality, often you're just dumped at checkout once you purchase (laughs) the work. And so it's just like a bad date. And so (laughs) we sat around and really thought about everything from discovery all the way down to display. So from the discovery point of really thoughtful curation, all the way to display and making sure that when it's framed, how do you get it on your wall? And what you were mentioning about rethinking the hanging system is something that came up. Marcus and I were going to be hanging about 100 artworks the next day for an event. And the person who was going to help us hang basically bailed the last minute. And so we, you know, we tried to be chill about it. And we said, okay, let's just ask Google. Google knows all, you know, Google. Google knows everything. uh, Yes. (laughs) What's the easiest way to hang art? We Googled it. And the first thing was hire someone. We're like, okay, (laughs) and the second was, oh, here are all these really crazy pulley systems, which will cost you a lot and take a lot of time to get to you. And we just couldn't believe there wasn't a simple way to hang art. So we started just sort of sketching our thoughts down. Like if we could hang art easily, what would it look like? Right? Because even when I hang art at home and my husband puts it up and he's like, are you sure it's where you want it? I'm like, yes, yes. And then he sits down and then I say, no, two centimeters to the right. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's me for sure. Always. (laughs) And so we said, okay, we would want something that was, you know, just easily mountable. You could move things right, left, up and down and everything would stay perfectly level. It was late at night. So we said, let's sleep on this. You know, we'd had a drink or two. Um, (laughs) Had some absolute. (laughs) And then in the morning, we said, okay, let's revisit and see if this is a good idea. And when we revisit it in the morning, we said, oh my gosh, not only is this a good idea, but we think we should pursue it. Mm. And so we called up our industrial designer friend, as you do in Stockholm. We were in Stockholm at the time. And he had us over. His name is Alexander Lervik, incredible guy. And he said, not only will this work, but I want to be a part of it. So we created this uh, mounting solution that allowed you to do exactly that. Mount the artwork, move it right, left, up or down and have it stay completely level. So you could make a beautiful gallery wall or anything really seamlessly. Yeah. And it's been really fun. You know, Fast Company named us one of the most innovative products. No Um, way. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. So then we decided to put it onto Kickstarter to see if there was actual demand for it. And there was, we were by far like 200% overfunded and people really had this need for it. So we're excited to always be thinking about the innovation process from discovery all the way to display when it comes to art collecting. And we have some exciting new things in the pipeline. I love that discovery to display. That is so cool. I didn't know about the Fast Company and the Kickstarter. That's, I mean, I just love the spirit of innovation and constantly you know, looking at how do we make this better? How do we make it a better user consumer experience? It's so cool. It's so inspiring. And talk to me about impact. I know that that's something that's really important to you personally. How do you draw in a sense of kind of impact social mission into what you do to who you are as a leader, as a business leader? I think social impact is incredibly important in everything that we do at the company and that I do outside of the company. So even if you look at how we operate within the art world, which is traditionally very opaque, we're incredibly transparent. We share our profits 50-50 with the artists. The pricing is all transparent. Everything that we do is measured and available for anybody to look at. And that for us is incredibly important because a lot of times people don't realize 
you know, if artists are getting the money at the end of the day, how they're being portrayed, how they're being shown to the rest of the world in terms of content. And so it's incredibly important for us to make sure that we do right by the artist as well as our end consumer. And I think for us, the second part of the mission is really to get these artist messages out. Like you were mentioning about the artists in Havana, you know, they're creating such incredible political work that was never accessible in the U.S. before we went in and made it so. (laughs) And you know, one of the artists that I went and saw had gotten kicked out of the country for three years because of the content that he was creating, just commenting on the social status of his countrymen. And when I went to visit him in studio, I said, Hamlet, this work that I'm seeing you create now is even more political than what I saw. Aren't you afraid that you'll be kicked out of the country again? And he looked at me, he said, if I don't tell our history, who will? And so those stories we feel deeply passionate about sharing because that's what creates impact, not only on the ground, allowing the artists to share their stories, but also in terms of creating and starting conversations for people to have around topics that they might not be comfortable normally talking about. You know, we even did a women by women exhibition on the Lower East Side, where we took over 11 storefronts and we had artists create works that spoke about the male gaze in the art world. And I, you know, creepily would stand at the corner of the streets just to hear and see how people were interacting with the artworks. No way. (laughs) Yes. I mean, and I remember listening to one conversation where the guy was like, Ugh, you know, sexual harassment doesn't really exist. No. And yes, and you know, I don't understand, you know, because, but he was coming really from a place where he was saying women have agency, so it shouldn't exist. And the girl he was with, you could see, I don't know, maybe it was their first or second date or something. So she wasn't super confident about going down. Maybe their last date. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but she looked at the artwork that they were looking at and said, but this artist seems to have experienced it. Why do you think that is? And all of a sudden you see that art gives you this permission to speak about these issues in a very non-confrontational way. That was just a beautiful thing to see. I love that. Well, again, I am so inspired about the company that you've built and I am absolutely going to be a consumer going forward. And uh, just thank you for the work that you've done in the industry. It's an industry that was craving that disruption in a way that creates the bridge between artists and people who love art. So thank you for the role that you play in that. And yeah, I'm such a fan. Thank you so much. Yes, we hope we're doing our part. We have an incredible team and we will wake up every day to fulfill this mission. I love it. Thanks so much, Nehema. Really appreciate it. We'll be back with the third and final segment of this special episode of The Business of Art in just a second. We're going to talk to Roberta Amundsen. She's the patron who actually buys a lot of art, and she's going to tell us why she believes it's so important and what it does for her life. But all this talk about creativity is probably making you want to create something. Of course, this is the Story Brand Podcast. We help you make great websites, great lead generators, capture emails. And we like to do that in such a way that it's not super salesy. You don't have to feel sleazy about it. Believe it or not, art kind of meets science when you create a great marketing funnel. It's all about relationships and earning trust. If you want some tips on doing that, on selling, telling people about your product in a way that is more artistic than salesy, I've got a great resource for you. Just go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. It's not just for artists trying to sell their paintings, it's for anybody trying to sell anything. If you're trying to get the word out about what you do, go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com and we've got some great resources there to help you. Again, it's 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. Okay, now back to our third and final interview. Ali sits down with a patron of the arts at a higher level than probably any of us are involved in. It's her conversation with Roberta Amundsen. Roberta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I don't think I know anyone who is more passionate about art than you are. Well, thank you. That's high praise. Like, when did you come to have such a deep love for it? 
Oh, gosh, I think it began when I was when I was a child, actually. The first story is I was uh, a year and two months old, and uh, my mother noticed I was missing. It was <laughs> December of 1950, which tells you how old I am. And uh, she went looking for me, and I was in the living room, and I had taken the presents out from under the Christmas tree and re- was reorganizing them because clearly they weren't balanced correctly how they were. <laughs> and so I, I always had this visual sense somehow. Mm. And then when I was in the eighth grade, we had a special course, and part of it was art history, and I fell in love with painting. Mm. And that summer, I got to go to Washington, D.C., and all I wanted to do was go to the National Gallery of Art and see the paintings mm. because the course had used art from the National Gallery. And my aunt, I mean, I was 13 years old, and my aunt thought, what's wrong with this girl? You know, she should want to go to the pool, (laughs) whatever, and she should want to be meeting boys, and she should want to be, maybe go to the Capitol and the art, you know, see the Constitution or something. But all I wanted to do is go to the National Gallery of Art. Those are the earliest ones that I just loved visual Mm. art. So fast forward to today. So tell me a little bit, I mean, you do so much. I had the privilege of visiting your home for an event earlier this year, which is how we met. And I was taken completely aback by just, I mean, it's, your home is an art exhibit in and of itself and, and seeing the way that you've curated all these works and, and the chapel you built in the backyard. I mean, it's just so incredible, but you do so much even beyond that. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of the scope of your, your patronage? I visit art galleries and do studio visits, and I like to get to know artists. Some of them are older and some of them are younger. And so I, I buy their work, and we also have a gallery in our office space, and we do shows of their work, and then I support their shows in other places, mostly by going, Mm. but also by connecting people. Mm. And so there's the part that's involved with artists, working artists. And then another part is being involved with museums. Mm. So I I was the chair of the board of the Museum of Biblical Art in New York City for Mm. five years. But I've been involved with the National Gallery of Art for of London for 14 years. Wow. And uh, we sponsored shows there. And then I've been on the the collector's committee at the National Gallery of the United States for, I think, about 12 or 14 years. And that's just, well, you have to be asked to be on it, but you have to pay to stay on it. That's the whole point. (laughs) It's trying to raise money to buy contemporary art because at its founding, our National Gallery, in its bylaws or whatever they are, said that they could not buy art by living artists. Oh, interesting. And so the only way to get art by living artists was to have somebody give it to them. But yeah, you don't want to be an so, artist and think you have to die in order for anyone to I know, I know. <laughs> but awful. Paul Millen was concerned that the quality, you know, you don't really know till they're dead, right? Oh, I don't gosh. know. Anyway, so so anyway, I'm I'm guessing. I don't I don't know. I haven't read about it, but that is the case. And so the collectors committee was founded I think in the late 60s or maybe early 70s and has bought a lot of contemporary art. Some of the artists are now dead that were alive at the time. And so that's been an education. I love it because you always get the background of the art that the curators have found for us to choose from. And that's the best part to me. So I love being involved with them. And so there's that. And then we commission art. Which is, this is you actually going out and and asking an artist to create a piece and finding the piece. Yeah. Wow. We've commissioned art. Mostly it's been for, it's been for, well, for sacred spaces, but but also for some semi-public spaces, mostly in the, at two universities, we've commissioned the chapel. Mm. And then we commissioned art for the Village of Hope. It was the first shelter for homeless families where the families could oh. stay together in California. And you commissioned art for it. Yeah. That's so beautiful. That's not a place that I've ever heard of somebody thinking to commission art for. Well, we had sponsored a colloquium for artists and community development people, workers, theologians, to talk about the role of beauty in the lives of those who are, I guess, the least of these. Yeah, in the lives struggling of, in some way. Yeah, yeah, and the people who wind up needing to go to homeless shelters. Yeah. And does beauty have any role in their lives? Well, mm. I knew these two organizations 
one called the Inner City Christian Federation in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which one of its core principles was beauty. And I knew that Jim Palmer at the what became the Village of Hope, which is the Orange County Rescue Mission. And so they were building a new campus, and I knew from Jim's work, because they had done the first shelter for abused women and their children. So they, they created, it was called the House of Hope. They built it in the architectural style of the neighborhood. He just did that intuitively. And then they furnished it with old furniture, but good, comfortable, so that the women wouldn't feel like they were put in an institution mm. as if they'd done something wrong, hmm. but in a place, the house of hope. Yeah. But I knew that he intuitively did this. And so he came to that meeting, and I was chatting to him, and he told me they were going to build a chapel. He's always been conscious that if you put people in something that looks like a barracks or a prison, they'll act like they're in a barracks or a prison. And if you put them in a place that says you have value, Mm. and beauty says that. Yes, it does. It says you. somebody thought you were important enough Mm. to make this beautiful. Hmm. So immediately there's a message. Hmm. You have value. Wow. You have value. And so we got to talking, and I said, well, I think I know the artist who could do stained glass for the chapel and maybe something else. And I also know who could make ceremonial gates. Hmm. They have gates not to keep the people in, but to keep the bad guys out, like the drug dealers and Mm. whoever else preyed on these people in the past. So anyway, the upshot was we commissioned stained glass windows and ceremonial gates and a a very large jar that functions as a kind of the wedding at Cana and the woman at the well with living water. And it has the symbols of the apostles. The stained glass windows are the symbols of the apostles. And the artist, who's Danish, chose symbols of the apostles from the Bible or from the golden legend where the apostles suffered Hmm. so that the people there could identify with the suffering of the apostles Mm. because they'd suffered too. That's why they're there. Wow. And so anyway, that's the upshot. Wow. So talk to me about this kind of way of of seeing the world that you have around this concept of beauty and what it means to create beautiful things to play that role in society. Well, art and beauty aren't the same thing. Mm. And to be good, art doesn't have to be beautiful. Mm. It is sometimes. I think the quality that art has to have is it has to be true. Mm. And some art isn't beautiful um, in the sense that, you know, beauty just stops you in your tracks. And you look at it and you just know. You just, I mean, it it comes to your mind. It's beautiful. You can, like people looking at a sunset and some art does that. Art can be beautiful. It doesn't have to be to be good. So the two get confused and it's it's not fair to art or to beauty. Yeah, that's a great Um, distinction. But beauty, beauty both gives you hope and it stops you in your tracks. It can be convicting because you see how beautiful you know, life can be or, or that beauty exists. And it may cause you to reflect on your life and think, you know, I really kind of need to get my act together. Mm. Or it at the same time gives you hope that you can be healed, that you can be better, that you can, that there's hope in a future. Beauty tells you that whatever, you know, mess you may be in, that's not the end of the story. So when it comes to the work that, that you choose to collect, what are the, do you look for true? Do you look for beautiful? What kind of creates that conviction in you to buy a piece? It's usually a combination of the two for me. Yeah. I have to like what it looks like because I'm so visual. Yeah. So I don't really have any art that I don't think is on some spectrum of beautiful. Although there's some that is is less so, but it's powerful. It grabs you. Mm. That isn't as much about visual beauty. But yeah, it's got to have... For me, it's got to be visually powerful and often beautiful, and it's also got to have meaning. Mm. So the two need to come together for me. Yeah. I think they do in most good art. I can think of some good art that you wouldn't say that's beautiful, except the truth of it is beautiful in its way. Right, so right. It's, it's not what? It's not a traditional view of visual beauty, yeah. but it is. Like Joseph Boyce's work comes to mind. You wouldn't 
think of it like you put it up against a Caravaggio painting and you might say the painting's beautiful and then you look at Joseph Boyce with this cardboard and whatever, except that, yeah, I think it can be beautiful too. So there you are. <laughs> Where do you find most of the pieces that you decide to collect? I make a practice of visiting. I, I need to do it some more, although I've been working on a book, so I haven't done as much studio and gallery visiting in New York, although I, st I do go once a year still and spend a day visiting studios and galleries in New York. And I've done it in L.A., and I, well, I, I get there to some galleries. And then in London, mm. I do a couple art days a year visiting mm. galleries and, and some studios in London. And then I go to a lot of art shows. The way to know art is to look. You yeah. have to go. Yes, I guess that's um, important. <laughs> yeah, you have to look. So I, I know artists, and there are some artists that I've known for a very long time. So I collect their work in depth. Then sometimes you have to not stop collecting so they aren't dependent on you. Right. Because some younger artists I've collected quite a bit at one point, and then I've, I've stepped back. Mm. and seen their careers grow so they don't need me so much to collect. Them. Oh, that's neat. What, what would you say to someone who's never even thought about collecting art? It's a great joy that you could have. Because <laughs> um, because it's, you know, I, and I, I actually gave a speech on patronage and I just was interviewed about the difference between a patron and a donor. Patronage is involved in the person of the artist and the purpose of the art and its creation, but also in its where it's going to be. Hmm. So, you know, the first thing is to look and to know something about art. And then the second thing is, is to know what you like. You know, I mean, if you don't like it, why should somebody else like it? <laughs> and why would you want to have it in your home or commission it to be somewhere else? You yeah. know, it's, but then the, the thing is to, to get to know the artist. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing. You don't have to become their best friend, but yeah. but you get to know them and know their work and what motivates them and why they do the kind of work they do. And then when you learn that, then when it comes to commissioning, you know this personal fit, you mm. know. So it's really having that relational approach to yeah. the way that you're collecting. Well, I just I am so moved by your passion and um you inspire me to start collecting and getting into that phase of my life. I just love how you've just, you have truly decked your life in art and in the arts. And thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> I think, guys, one of my favorite episodes ever. Yeah. Really? I really like this format, too. I'd love to experiment with this format as we move the podcast where we can't do it every episode. Yeah, yeah. But the business of something, and we get different perspectives on it, and you guys go chase down people and stories. It's just really fun. Yeah. I love the different vantage points. And Allie, you, you were terrific. You're just so good at this. So You're naturally just saying that because I'm sitting here, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> because so, it's true. I think the world is saying that now. <laughs> she was once ours, but we had to give her to the world. Yeah, to the world. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of delivering happiness, like Ali Trowbridge. Next, King of transitions. It's amazing. <laughs> Next week's transition. episode, it's an interview with Jen Lim, who was one of the original people at Zappos, yeah. who sort of like revolutionized customer service. They're known more for customer service than they are for shoes. <laughs> yeah. That's saying something. Yeah. And Jen was integral in that. Jen left Zappos, and the founder of Zappos actually funded her new company called Delivering Happiness. It's a book. It's a consulting thing. But she just talks about the beauty, the importance of customer service. You know, we hear that a lot. But I actually ran into Jen backstage in the green room at somewhere where we were both speaking. And I didn't know what she did. But there was just something so humble and magical about her. We hit it off immediately. And then, of course, find out, I didn't realize you're a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Will you please come on the podcast? Anyway, she agreed to come on the podcast. Here's a little clip of next week's interview with Jen Lim. You know, no matter who you talk to in the academic side of this, it comes back to a few basic things of what happiness meaningfully and sustainably can be. So number one is being true to your authentic self and our internal speak is be true to your weird self. Number two is being able to live out the senses of flow. When you're doing an activity, 
and you're so engrossed in, in your, you're in your flow that minutes go by, but it feels like hours have gone by. So there's a lot of different tools out there, whether it's Strength Finder or Strength Scope, and being able to help people identify what those strengths and therefore flow states are, and being able to incorporate what those things are in your role and responsibilities is what we've seen can help not just productivity and engagement, but in the end, happiness of that individual as an employee. She's magical. She's that just so makes fun. me happy hearing that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And she just she's like this traveling angel who just goes around the world. She's home very, very little, and she just goes around the world saying, you know, it's economically viable, in fact, rewarding for you to make people happy. Yeah. And you know what a great message because you know we can sometimes forget that in the mundane tasks of the day that it's really about the customers. I feel like that's how JJ lives. Them. I feel like that's how JJ lives at any given. I mean, JJ that does laugh. live that it's way. It's like you just you're a joy bomb everywhere you go. A joy bomb. You know, remember wow. the Steve Cochran interview you did? Yes. I think JJ's lead skill is nurturing. Aww. It is. I took the test. It's I nurturing. took the test. Yeah. You, yeah. You got really excited about <laughs> I it. I did. I took the test. I bought the book. I may be buying the course. <laughs> it's one of the reasons StoryBrand works so well. It, it's not. Not that I'm not good with people. I'm, I'm very, very good with people. But it's my least, nurturing is my least whatever. When it's last place, what did Steve call it? Your nemesis voice. My nemesis. And I realized, like, <laughs> we got to reach our goals. We got to reach our goals. And everybody's like, hey, but, you know, let's make sure there's team morale is high. And I'm like, team morale will be high when we have a trophy. Let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> nothing, like, nothing like winning to make team morale uh-huh. high. Uh-huh. You staff your liabilities. You surround yourself by people who uh, are stronger than you. And so there you go. And Jen Lim is another person who's just going to help us really, really understand and cultivate better relationships, not only with our clients, but with our team as well. So if you're not subscribed to the Building Story Brand podcast, go to iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts and make sure to subscribe today. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. You can also pick up my new book, Building a Story Brand. It's available anywhere you buy books. It goes through the Story Brand framework. It'll help you clarify your message. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to buy art.